a lot of times with with situations and students, it's about teaching them how to not quit, how to not give up on themselves when things don't go your way. Because the more you can learn and the more that skill can be taught, the better off that person is long-term as they realize and recognize that in other areas of their life, things aren't always going to go your way. That was from my conversation exploring the walk of life with keynote speaker, podcaster, assistant director of Campus Life at Quinnipiac University, and author Jamil Effend. Jamil is still under 30 and pursues a wide variety of passions while also being a committed family man. Jamil shares his thoughts on the core values he builds his life on, the importance of education and the value of networking that can come from it, and his experiences in creating a high fantasy series of novels with his brother. Jamil is just awesome, and I really hope you come away from our conversation inspired by Jamil, just like I did. As always, thank you to Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. Jamil Effin, how are you doing tonight, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. Um, really excited to have you here. You are a podcaster, a motivational speaker, uh, an assistant director of Campus Life at Quinnipiac University, and a co-author of the High Council series, uh, where you've got two books so far, book one, War in the Fallows, and book two, Win the Crown Gambles. Um and you're not 30 yet, correct? <laughs> <laughs> not, not yet, not just yet. <laughs> sitting, sitting pretty at 27. I, I don't know. I don't know what you're going to need. If you don't have a therapist now, I would go <laughs> ahead and get started because you've got so much on your plate, man. Um, no, I'm kidding. I think it all sounds super awesome. And, and looking at your website, inspiredbyjamil.com, um, it, it is frankly inspiring. It's cool to see someone just really doing so many different things and involved with so many different passions. Um, so I want to kind of hit on all these different areas that you're in, but I want to start with just who are you? Where are you from? What was your family like? How did you grow up? Mm. Yeah, so I'm Jamil. Um, I'm originally from Connecticut. Um, I live in Connecticut now. I work at Quinnipiac University. Um, born and raised. Uh, I like to say that my family was or is uh, the most important thing to me. Um, they really are the backbone of what I, who I became, who I am. Uh, they've been supporting me throughout all of my journey. And I feel like because of them, I felt so strongly about being able to give back to other people. Um, so that's a really big piece of just my identity in general as family. I've been lucky enough to have, I have three brothers and two sisters. Oh, wow. Uh, loving mom, a dad. Uh, and I have, I think almost, I think 13 nieces and nephews now. So we have a <laughs> real big, real big family. And yeah. I recently had a daughter, so she just added to the added. Well, congratulations! <laughs> thank you, thank you. So she's four. She's yeah, going on four months. So um, it's been it was it's really cool experience growing up. I've definitely was uh, one of those people who like to achieve things and try things. Uh, didn't come from an area where we were able to necessarily have all the resources, but through a lot of hard work and a lot of determination and self belief. Um, I think you can just achieve anything. And because of that belief, I am kind of where I'm at now in life, yeah. which, I, which feels good. That's awesome, man. Well, so um, am I correct in understanding that you're the first in your family to graduate from college? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so first in my family to graduate college. Um, I ended up being also being the first to to get my master's degree, which was awesome, too. Um, just doing doing something. I feel like uh, when I first started out, when I first had the idea of going to college, uh, for the longest time, I I had tied college to athletics, mm. right? So I was a I was a football player. I ran track. I was a all conference track runner, and I really wanted to. I thought the only way I was going to make it to college was athletics. Went to went to college. Went to Becker College actually to start with. Played football there. It was D three. Um, realized really quickly that uh, my life was not going to revolve around football. Uh, I was five six. Uh, I was about mm. 170 pounds. It's not really the NFL stats that you need right. to make it. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so, uh, so I decided to transfer. Um, so after that, after that first semester, I transferred um, closer to home, back to Connecticut. I went to a state school. 
uh, Central Connecticut State University. I loved it there. Uh, really got involved with all of the different campus activities that were available and all the different resources. Uh, one of one of my favorite advisors said, like, these are all resources here for you to use. Some people use them, some people don't, and that's where the value comes in. He's like, the more you do, that you pay into for this college experience, the more you'll get out of it at the end. Um, and I took that and ran with it. I uh, had a really successful time as a student leader, being in orientation, um, becoming a student government association president, um, and doing a lot of a lot of leadership work, programming and event planning, which I do now at the professional level. I started in college, and it was awesome to go through that experience myself because it led to my two younger brothers also going to college. So they both saw what I did. They both came to college too. And it was been awesome to see as they've gone through their own life journeys and own life experience um, following after mine. That's awesome. So uh, did you, did you like school when you were a kid? I I did. I loved school. I felt like uh, (laughs) I was one of those kids that like, I used to go to, I used to go to school having a good old day every day. Uh, (laughs) Were you excited when summer was over? Oh, I, I never, I hate it when summer would end, right? I always okay. hate it when summer okay. would end. But I never minded going back to school, partly because I'm very social. So mm-hmm. just being able to talk to friends, seeing people, get to know people, it's always yeah. been something I've looked forward to. And I always look at like a new semester, a new year, at just like a, just a new chance to restart, to become this new person. So I've always been, I've always felt like I was going these self-actualization journeys, going from <laughs> seventh grade to eighth grade. <laughs> I so mean, they, it is to some extent, right? <laughs> yeah. So you start doing that, and and that's the mindset. Especially as a little kid, you're like, "Oh, this is going to be the greatest journey ever." I'm a, <laughs> I'm a sophomore now. What can I achieve? It's like wow. I was definitely the annoying kid at school. Oh man, it. yeah. That's I'm I I I feel a sense of guilt that I could not even approach being that person as a kid. I was the opposite. <laughs> I was like, "Really, we got to go back again, again." But uh, in fact. Until, honestly, a couple of years ago, which is going to make me sound insane, which is fine. Um, honestly, I thought people who said that they were excited when school was back in session after the summer were just lying. Mm. I thought they were just trying to, like, sound good. You know what I mean? And then I've met a lot of adults now that are like, no, I really liked it. And I'm like, really? Okay, people can just be different is what I had to learn. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of us, some of us enjoy the idea of taking some class. I hated yeah. summer. I hated summer reading. I'll tell you that. I never did summer reading. Yeah, I always yeah, lied sure. on all that stuff. <laughs> you got to get the pizza points or whatever, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> well, that's cool. So, I guess a question is, and this is kind of a I don't know, it's a strange question, but. Do you feel like, and this could be true, not just in at the college level, but do you feel like the, the highest value of education is the curriculum or do you think that it's maybe some more mm, less obvious lessons that come through completing the coursework? And I don't mean to, do, it doesn't have to be a zero sum game, certainly, but does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think personally, uh, my philosophy is really that uh, the biggest the best piece of academics um, are the connections you make. So it's learning how to make those connections with other folks. Uh, For me, especially at the university level, I really think that the most important thing you can do is network. I think that gives you more than any class ever could. Mm -hmm. Um, Classes are a means to the end. The end is connection. The worse you do in your grades, the worse you do in school, the harder it is to make the connections with the people that actually um, can put you in better situations going forward. When I was in my undergrad experience, at least, I, I spent a lot of time outside of the classroom doing other work, doing working with other people, getting involved all over campus. I knew all the high-level administrators, um, and I didn't even get a 3.0 GPA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I finished with, a, I think, a 299, which wasn't, you know. <laughs> almost. Then, yeah, almost. <laughs> I, I finished with an almost GPA. Uh, 299 is still the reason on the transcript. It's annoying. It's just <laughs> the most annoying number as you can see. But it's because I spent so much time focused on building connections and building a network. Um, and that network is what got me my first career position. Um, and that network is what ended up leading to the position I got um, here at Quinnipiac. Um, just knowing people and being able to say, hey, I talked to this person and they really got a chance to communicate with me on a deeper level um, and learning that networking stuff 
that really makes the difference because not a single time has anyone asked me, oh, how was that counseling course you took? Uh, right. it's like they don't even, it's like they don't even consider that a piece because the academics are almost assumed. Um, and I think that's the piece that I think for young people, especially to focus on is like, focus on the connections you make and the genuine, um, the genuine networking that you can do because that's the piece that will be the thing to unlock so many more doors. Uh, it doesn't really take education to do that. It just takes having an understanding of how powerful networks can be in college. And even if you're in really good high school, they both, they both teach you that guidance counselors are super powerful. Um, they, they really can get you through doors and it took, going to college and seeing how powerful people really are uh, and how powerful a name can be to really give me that understanding. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's an excellent point. And I think it's something that's not, not emphasized enough. Um, you know, I didn't go to, to college and, and then worked candidly just terrible jobs in for basically most of my twenties and then eventually got laid off. <laughs> and then, and then a group of guys that I had worked with, ended up going to this other corporation that was actually a, a pretty good corporation in the financial software industry. And, and I ended up getting a job there and have now worked there for almost a decade and, and it mm. completely changed my life. Right. And it's a, it's the kind of job that I should have gone to college to get probably. Right. And I don't, none of that is to be prestigious about the job or anything. The point is just that what you said is exactly true for me. Like it wasn't my resume at the terrible jobs that got me there. It was, who I knew, right? I knew like 10 dudes that would vouch for me and they did. And that's not exactly the same type of networking you're talking about because it's not just peers necessarily. Um, but I think that that is, you know, uh, there are words thrown around like nepotism, which, you know, is more family specific, mm -hmm. I get. But that's kind of the way the world works. And it's reasonable because when people have important things to to do or to get help with, they want to get someone that they can trust. And if they already know someone or know someone who can vouch for someone, that goes a long way more than just your technical skills. Right? Yeah, it, it goes so much further. And I think the, the big piece that you're even touching on, um, it's like it goes further than any type of resume or blind search, right? Like if I don't know you, then who better to trust than someone that I know that also knows you? The person that I can actually verify, like, oh, if I if I trust this person's insight, then maybe you must be good enough to at least take a look at, right? At mm -hmm. least give a chance on, um, because trust is so important. And a lot of the things we do, trust is important. Um, I've come across a lot of people when I started podcasting. Um, one of the big things for me was like, how do I meet people? How do I talk to people? Uh, and a big piece of that became like, oh, there's other authors because a lot of my people that I've interviewed are authors. I was like, there's other authors out there, but I kind of want to know that that person's a good interview before I actually sit down with them, right? Mm. Uh, so what I'd end up doing is going to, I had another buddy, he's a podcaster. He also interviews authors. I'd go and I'd ask him, hey, have you gotten any good interviews? Is anyone worth bringing on my pod? <laughs> And then he would send me over some names of people he thinks that uh, that did a good job on his. And they didn't know that because I'd reach out and be like, hey, I would love to have you on the podcast. I saw that you were on this other thing or I see the work you're doing. And that's because it's a network. It's it's building a network. And then as, as you build out further and further, you only make more connections. And those connections are really the the trust lines that bring you into other spaces. Yeah. Yeah, it's so it's it's interesting how um, how life plays out that way. Where like you know, when I was a kid coming up and, and thinking about college and, and higher education and stuff, it was all about like, well, you got to go to school so you can get a quote unquote good job or something, right? Like so you can have a career that you you like or whatever. But the way I always thought about it was one hundred percent through the lens of like again to put it like I did earlier, the curriculum that I would be learning, and I didn't really think about and. And I don't mean to blame others or something, but I it just it wasn't in my head this idea of networking. So I just really love um, the emphasis that you're you're putting on that, and and just how uh, it's it, like when you look at a job application or something. There's all this complexity to a role, but 
it's like fundamentally it's just what you just said it's like yeah but can i trust you you know what i mean like mm-hmm. all of this other complexity we'll figure out but i have to trust you first because even if you can do all that stuff but i can't trust you <laughs> then it's irrelevant right yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly so do you think that everyone should go to college then i think that college is a place is a means to an end so depending on what that end is supposed to be for you i don't necessarily think everyone should go I think that there are some people who benefit from college more than others, and it's really based off of where they want to to end up. Um, there's a lot of trades. There's a lot of different skills that you can gain in other areas that you'll gain those skills if you don't go to college. But there's also networks that you can build in college. So it's really specific to an individual. So even as me, as someone who works at a university, I'm very much in the camp that if like entrepreneurs i think if you want to start a business there's really not much that college can give you outside of a network that can really help you build your business because you can build your business with the free information that's available to you online um there is no class that i took and i i majored in management and all this other stuff there's no class that i took in during my undergrad that got me prepared to start a podcast and launch this whole thing that i'm doing um that that didn't I didn't get that from entrepreneurship, right? Like I got that because I learned how to connect with folks. I started self-publishing. There was no course on self-publishing a book that was going to give me the information I needed so that I can get on Amazon and start doing the, doing and moving the way I have been. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that was my only career direction, I could have done that at eighteen. Like there was no reason right. why I couldn't just finish high school and then start doing that. I think the the area where I see most people make a mistake, especially in the college world, um, is going without a direction. Uh, some people not knowing what major they want or what path they want to go down. It's okay to take a year after high school to like go to work and see what the world is like and see oh, if this is the hard. right direction for you. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it's okay because because if you if you decide after if you decide after a year, hey, I'm going to go to college nothing good like life will continue you'll still make it um it took me five years to graduate college and most people are graduating in four and it took me i didn't finish till i was 23 um i got my master's i took a year off between getting my master's so it ended up taking me even longer i didn't get my master's till i was 26 um but that year off was really the piece that gave me the validation i needed to know that i wanted to do a master's program Mm-hmm. Uh, because had I not had I not taken that year in between and just said, oh, I'm going to do it, I would have missed out on so much more life because that's where it got real for me. I was working in a stock room as a receiver uh, at a Nordstrom Rack, uh, working with the truck drivers as they were pulling in every day and sorting packages. Like that was my life after right. after <laughs> five years of college. All I'm doing is sorting packages. I was like, I could have done this a long time ago. I don't know why I started like, it just it becomes like a, a it was the realization right like i could have done this without this bachelor's degree like right. this was not necessary and then that led me to saying what other direction do i want to head down and that's where i ended up uh going back for a master's So on your website, um, I, I, there, you cite some some core qualities or core values uh, that you try and emphasize to the students that you work with. And I, I kind of want to just go through those. I mean, there's only three, so it's not like a, an hour long <laughs> thing here. But I want to go through these three different values and just hear your thoughts on them and, and why, like how you got to them and, and why you think they're important. Um, and the first one that you list is, is advocacy and specifically self-advocacy. Mm-hmm. Can you talk just about what that means to you and how you came to understand that as a primary you know, idea that you want to convey to others. Yeah. So self-advocacy, that really started with my mom. So my, mo- my mother is a huge advocate for her children. She's had children with disabilities. Um, I myself, I, went, I had tons of eye surgeries and issues with 
with sites. So I had large, large font, large textbooks, all this stuff, stuff that like nowadays, right? Being a 27 year old man, like almost doesn't impact my life anymore, especially with technology. Huh. But right. as a child, you know, you're growing up and you're like, oh, I can't see the paper. It has to get larger. And she, she used to emphasize to me about self-advocacy, making sure that you are talking about what you need um, and not feeling bad about it. Uh, and so for me, as a professional, I like to teach my students um, that if you need something, you need to speak up on it, uh, that no one's going to come to your rescue and you're not always going to have someone come to your rescue um, in the work environment. Uh, in a professional environment, sometimes it's on you. And a lot of times it's on you. And giving them the ability and the, sh- the skill set of advocating for yourself, being tactful so that you don't burn bridges and burn relationships, but still making sure that you're taken care of in the ways that you need to be most successful. Um, that's why self-advocacy for me has been so important to really preach, because if you're not taken care of, then you really can't be your best version at work. Yeah. And something, you know, a detail there that you mentioned that I think is also important is, um, is that tactful piece, right? Like for a long time. So I'm someone who's not afraid of confrontation and has always been, uh, pretty, it's come naturally to me to stand up for myself and whatever, (laughs) but, and I, I, I'm not completely past it now. I think I would like to think I've gotten better over the years, but a lot of times that presented itself by me just like being in someone's face and being like, Hey, this isn't right. And what, and it's, it's not like I was trying to bully people or anything like that, but just simply a very tactless, <laughs> just <laughs> hard approach to things. And, and it, the truth is, is that it, sometimes it doesn't matter if you're right. If you go and you put someone on the defensive and put someone in a place where they feel threatened. And again, I don't mean violence or something. I mean, obviously that's a problem, but even if they just feel threatened in whatever mental space, they are way less inclined to listen to you, especially if you mm-hmm. have no other levers to pull. Right. Um, I just think that's a really important point that it's like, be honest, but also learn how to deliver that with some humility, even when you're right. Yeah. And, and a big piece of being tactful is being sort of strategic in your approach, right? You have to know who you're speaking to. You have to know the hierarchy, right? For me, a lot of times being tactful is talking to your supervisor and making sure that you're not making them upset or mad about something that, like, that's a supervisor. You should know how to, you have to learn how to speak to your supervisor. Sometimes it's not easy to say, hey, you did, you messed up. That's my supervisor who messed up. So for me, I'll point it out and say something different than if it's someone that works for me. If it's someone that I, if someone I supervise, I might be a little bit more direct. Or if I know they need a message that's a little softer, I might say something in a little bit softer tone or softer way. I might sit them down when they're alone versus making a joke about it. It's all, all these different ways to be tactful. And if I'm advocating for myself, if I'm saying, hey, this is what I need from you, um, I always make sure people understand uh, that it's not personal. And I think the big piece for people who are learning to self-advocate is that you're not you're not mad at the person necessarily. We have to start separating ourselves from our emotions, right? You might be upset with something that someone did or some rule that someone has imposed, but it doesn't have to be that individual person that goes home to their family and that's just putting food on the on the table, right? You don't right. got to be angry at them. You can just be mad at this policy that impacts you. Um, so talk about the policy and separate that from the person. What I like to say is like, you know, I love you, right? I, you know, you are always good with me. But this, <laughs> man, we got to figure this out. We got to <laughs> figure this other thing. And and I do that so often because it's it's just easier, right? It's easier to say, look, me and you, we're always good. Like me and you, we got it. But it's just whenever we have, whenever this happens, you get, you send the email, the email so mean, like the email is always rude. Like if you're going to just tell me in person, we can just talk about this. We, we're right. good. We, I'm not mad at you. I just want you to know. And those right. kind of conversations I feel like get lost. Um, especially when you're trying to advocate for yourself, cause you might just be emotional and upset. Uh, so be strategic. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, I think another way of looking at what you're talking about is, is is empathy and it's you know it starts with empathy for yourself right and being being comfortable with the fact that you're a person that does have needs and things that have to be fulfilled but then simultaneously holding empathy for someone else and understanding where they're coming from like 
yeah, the supervisor, you might not like what they're doing with you, but you're not the only person that they manage, right? So having that perspective of what else they're dealing with as well. Um, it's crazy mm-hmm. how powerful empathy can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, may, it makes all the difference. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so the next the next value that you listed out is uh, is resilience. Uh, so can you talk about how you came to that and what that means to you? So so for me, resilience is that that feeling of being gritty. I think I think being resilient is being able to outlast and keep going, uh, to not quit. A lot of times with with situations and students, it's about teaching them how to not quit, how to not give up on themselves when things don't go your way. Mm -hmm. Because the more you can learn and the more that skill can be taught, the better off that person is long term as they realize and recognize that in other areas of their life, things aren't always going to go your way. Uh, there is so many times. And for me, coming from Nordstrom Rack was like the best experience because there were so many times where I'd go to work and they would, someone would get mad at me for not putting the right sensor on a piece of clothing, right? <laughs> and I'm like, are we seriously mad about the sensor and it's not this one? You got to put the black tags on this one. I'm like, why, why are we in, in – it's the resiliency, right? To I'm going to keep going to work, though, because I have to keep putting food on the table. I have to keep paying my bills. I have to keep getting through. Um, you can't just quit, right? You can't just give up. And a lot of times, right, when you're doing work and you're when you're out in the real world, you realize how quickly that all that piece of I can just give up goes away. Right. I can't just give up because I have to continue to live. Um, And for my students and I like to say college is the real world, but it's a different world than what everyone else is living because you get to be sheltered a bit. And a lot of people are sheltered in different ways. But a lot of times you're sheltered. You're off on your own. You don't have to worry about uh the realities of things. So it's easy to just say, I'm giving up. I'm giving up on this club, giving up on this group, giving up on this thing. And that's why you have to challenge them to be more resilient, to be gritty, to say, this was tough. You got through it. And I like to talk about how that other side looks. Like if we did something and it sucked and it was difficult, let's talk about how we still got through it. Let's talk about how we're still pushing now and how we're going to continue going forward because that builds resiliency, that builds grit, and that will help you in the future when you're going through something tough at work to know this isn't going to last forever. We're eventually going to get through this and we're going to keep going forward. Yeah. No, I think that's super powerful. Um, And I think that it's, uh, yeah, I I agree with it wholeheartedly. And, and, you know, especially in the, the current era or whatever, it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of self-help stuff out there, frankly. Right. And so there's a lot of, um, I see things about like toxic positivity and, and, uh, things that diminish the idea of that, like choosing what you think about matters and, Mm -hmm. and, and almost the sentiment like, Hey, stuff happens to you. And that's just, you know, it, it will be what it will be. And you can't do anything about it. And it's true that you can't control everything that happens to you, but you can control how you think about it, mm-hmm. right? And maybe you can't control how you think about it the moment it happens, but as long as you stay alive, you'll have more time to process and, and change how you think about it maybe, right? And um, I, I just, I think it's, the, what made me go on this rant now is, is just you talking about when something that sucks happens or someone goes through something and it's like, it's easy to go, well, let's now talk about all the ways that that was hard. And it's not that those things aren't true or that they're not ever relevant, but it, it's important to to pick what you emphasize, right? To pick mm-hmm. what you focus on. And so in the example you gave, picking, you know, well, what did we do to get through it? And let's talk about how we survived and how we made it and how we're now thriving. That's all just as relevant and real as how difficult it was or what the challenges were. But I don't feel like that conversation's being had often enough um, that people can literally choose what to focus on and then what to take out of an experience. Yeah. I think that a lot of like a lot of what you just said, it's a lot of the choice theory, right? So I studied this, this choice theory in counseling and it's that we have the choice to we have a choice, right? With our minds about where we focus our energy and the more things that you can control, the more things that you have a choice on, uh, the better you'll feel at the end of the day. So I focus a lot of my attention on what are our choices, 
And if we make a choice, if we say, you know what, we're going to focus on where, like how we, how we survived this, like how we got through this event, because this was, t- this was tough. The planning process might not have been smooth. All the, we're going to figure out how, how did we get through it? Like, let's, let's talk about that. Opposed to, uh, this sucked and this, we should never do it like this again. Right. Why are we, why are we approaching it from this negative lens to begin with? And I think that's what you just said, right? Why approach life from the negative lens? Yeah. I think that, I think that there's a, a piece of it where when, when a, and I think this is generally true for people. So not just like certain types of people or something, but I think that when a person is critical, there's like a, I don't know, a feeling of like, like you're being more, <laughs> you're being more thoughtful or something. The reason I say this is like, I've gone to concerts with my friends where it was an amazing show, right? Like we all walked out, all of us loved it. And then the first thing someone in the group will want to do is be like, I mean, it was a really great show, but did you notice that at this one? And it's like, dude, you're not even wrong, but who cares? Like, why would that be what we talk about right now? You know what I mean? And they'll be like, oh, you don't want to be real about it. And it's like, no, I do. But the reality is that the two hours we just spent are not defined by that one (laughs) tiny problem that you had. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, this doesn't diminish all of the rest of the experience. Right. (laughs) <laughs> and it is easy, right? It is easy to focus on negative things. And I yeah. think I think a lot of times we focus on we focus on how bad the situation was, <laughs> um, right? How bad? Oh, this was terrible. This sucked. I, I mean, and, and when you think about it, it wasn't too bad, but it was. It, it still sucked. Like this one aspect really sucked. Um, I like to think about how when I was in high school, uh, my football team, my senior year, actually, the year before, we were nine and one, made it to the playoffs. It was great. I was a junior, riding high, thinking everything was gonna be grits and good and instead grits and gravy instead our my senior year we're three and seven (laughs) we're a terrible team we're getting blown out every other game i mean we're Mm. losing 45 nothing right like Mm, it was not fun yeah getting destroyed (laughs) in front of everybody um but on thanksgiving day i remember we we had our thanksgiving game that's against our our rival high school Uh, we play an amazing game right we i we talked about Wooly needed to play one amazing game. It doesn't matter for the rest of everything else, right? We, right. we, we really had the approach. And this is like no lie. We said like the year has been terrible, but that doesn't matter anymore, right? We could be, we were, we, we were two and seven going into the game. The year is terrible. Doesn't matter. We've lost three straight. Doesn't make a difference. All that matters is that we win this one game. Right. And if we put all of our energy and effort to win this game, it'll make everything else better. And our entire approach the entire year was that, like, as long as we win this game, or that, that whole two weeks leading up, as long as we win this game, as long as we win on Thanksgiving, everything will be forgiven. And we won on Thanksgiving. Hey, nice. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? There's not a single person that ever said anything bad about our team afterwards because we did one thing. We won on Thanksgiving. It changed the, the narrative of our entire senior year to be this like ah this big come from behind underdog story and i remember there was a team later like six or seven years after i graduated they lost right they lose on thanksgiving oh no and we and then we said ah they couldn't keep the streak alive i can't believe it can't believe it defined by oh you lost the streak now those kids don't even want to go to the football game anymore because oh man and and it just it's funny how our minds right create the narrative we were yep. three and seven, terrible team, and none of us talk about being bad. We only talk about how we won on Thanksgiving because we can focus on just the positive and not any of the rest of the negatives if we choose to. Yeah. And I think that that's just a testament to our own realities. We focus on what we want to. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. Uh, and, and then the third the third core value that you have on your site is, uh, is joy. Um, mm-hmm. So can you talk about how that weaves in and, and how you came to that? Yeah, so... For me, the reason why joy is so important, and I think why I decided that that was the last thing I want students to focus on, is joy. with joy comes gratefulness, right? The gratefulness of your experience, being joyful with this experience that you get to have, that you get the privilege of having. Um, it's the recognition that, one, you get to do something that no one else gets to do. Uh, you get to go through your experience in your way, the way that no one else can. 
and being happy about that and recognizing the the positivity in that is important because a lot of people will go through their life experience very upset with the decisions and the different outcomes that they've got the luck that they drew and they will harp on all of the bad right when people tell their stories of their life they focus on the negative things that happen to them uh instead of the positive of that experience so i look at myself transferring from my first college i had to become a transfer student it sucked i had to transfer over credits and I lost all my friends from football because I decided to go to a different school. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the like, oh, I can focus on all the negatives, or I can talk about how positive that experience was, how it ended up leading to me making even more lifelong friends, how I mm-hmm. met my wife at the new college I went to, and I can reframe that. How joyful that experience was, how grateful of an experience that transferring really became. So approaching life with joy and approaching life. From the standpoint that this is beautiful, this uh, this this opportunity that we have is beautiful. I think it just opens your world um, to be such a more positive place. And then I think the other piece is we don't talk about being joyful enough at all. As just a society, we don't even ask, we don't even ask people if they're happy. Like, are you happy? Right? When do people ask you, are you happy? Like, are you, right. what, what are you happy about right now? Like, dude, today was an amazing day. Like, right. why are you not, why are you not like celebrating this? Um, one of the things I do with my students right now, um, I do top five Tuesdays. So basically it's this concept, right? Every Tuesday I'll rank it. Where does it fall in the top five <laughs> <laughs> of all the Tuesdays I've ever had my entire right. life? Where wow. does this fall on the top five? Every one of them makes the top five, right? Every single Tuesday, no matter how bad it is, made it to the top five. Nice. And, uh, <laughs> and they just keep, re- they say, what happens to the ones that, what happens once you, re- you reach five weeks? I'm like, look, we just keep going. Like, they just keep recycling in and out. Uh, right. And the mindset is, every, no matter how tough the day was, even if it's for us, it's the fifth one in the top five, it's still worthy of me having some celebration and joy about it. Because as difficult as this day was, there was probably one that was harder. There was probably one that was more difficult, one that I enjoyed less. Um, and you all have to recognize that every Tuesday is a top five Tuesday. And I say that all the time. Every Tuesday is a top five Tuesday. <laughs> no matter what goes on, no matter if the morning sucked, if my car had a flat tire, it's right. still a top five Tuesday. Because <laughs> I'm going to approach life with joy um, and not negativity. Well, so I want to talk about um, about your 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 books a little bit. So you co-wrote two different books that are part of the same fantasy series with your brother. Is that right? Yes. One of your brothers, I should say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what was that like? Like, had you guys planned on that for a long time? Was it kind of spontaneous? Like, how did you guys decide we're going to write a fantasy series? Because that's a pretty big undertaking. It was a big undertaking. And for us... Me, me, and my. First off, we always love telling stories. That was this has always been a huge piece of who we were. Mm. Big video game fans, love yep. role playing games. Yeah, uh, we we are we are all about the long con. We we love that. Yeah. Um. So for us, it's always been something we've been interested in. Uh. For the actual book piece, it became a, it got to a point during uh, I want to say August of 2020 where. 
I sat back and I was like, hey, I want to do a project. I want to write a book. First, I was looking for a story that I wanted to read and I couldn't find one with all of the elements that I was looking for. Mm. So then I was like, I want to write one. My brother, he's always been into writing. Uh, for me, I've never really, I never really dabbled into the professional writing space up until the point where I was going to write the book. So we started, we started the process of planning because he was all, he was all down for it. Um, you know, he just hey, you want to write a book? He's, he's was like, yeah, of course. If you want to do it, I'll definitely be involved because yeah. we, we know it's going to get published. That was his, <laughs> that was his mindset. He's like, no matter what, you're going to make sure it gets published because you're a doer, and I'm a, <laughs> I'm not so much a doer. He's but a creative. I yeah, he's a creative. He, that's the word for it. That's what I got to tell him. He's a creative. Yeah. So. <laughs> so so we sit down, we start the planning process. We start first, it was like we had to do research overload because we had no idea how to do this, mm. um, how to how to publish a book, how to self-publish at that, how to start a business. Um, I had already been in the mindset of starting a business and doing that. So I started like that piece was already underway. So we start looking up, re we start doing research. How do people publish books? What is their writing process like? How do you outline? How do you world build? Um, we started getting into really, really nitty gritty details about travel. How, how far can a horse go in a day? Like we start mm. figuring out all the stuff, right? Um, cause that's the lengths that authors go to, which yeah. outside looking in, you almost forget that that's really what you have to think about. Like how far can a bird, a raven fly from sending a raven? Can a raven <laughs> really get there in a, in a day? Like how, how fast or how long would this take? Um, so we start doing that. We start outlining the world. We start building out. Uh, some storylines that we really enjoyed. Uh, we came up with the concept of kings and queens becoming gods at the age of 40, mm. right? We started coming up with this. What would that world look like if, if everyone's king and queen became, if they became gods, if they sat on this council and ruled together and they sat on this, on this mountain called High Rock? Like what mm. if they sat there like as Olympus, right? And they were li literally gods in front of us. And going from there, we started building out the story and fleshing it out more. Then we started the writing process. Our writing process ended up being uh, a story of multiple characters. We both decided to take the lead on certain characters. So he wrote one, I wrote two, and we started writing together. Every chapter we'd write, we'd send it to the other person. You get the feedback, uh, you get your thoughts, you might make some edits and then send it back. And then we'd keep going with that up until the first book was finished. When the first book got finished uh, and the story finally all came together, the storylines are hard enough to write because when you're writing a book, it's like you're trying to find the most interesting plot twist, the most interesting story. But luckily, not writing alone meant that we could always talk to each other. Right. And we spent a ton of time talking to each other. And then we got to end that publishing process. And that was one of the more difficult things I've had to do in my entire life. And it's only only made me more excited to start the second one, though. Hmm. So... I, it sounds like to some extent, like you'd kind of developed at least like a, a premise for the world that you wanted to tell the story in first. After that, was it, did you have plot ideas or did you have characters develop next? Like, or were characters mm. last? So for us, there, it, it came in this order specifically. We had the idea of the Kings and Queens becoming gods. Right. And then we had the idea of the high King Albion. So he was going to be the religious figure that the entire world revolved around. Um, and we really enjoyed this idea that he was the high king. He was the one who created the high council. He brought them together. Mm. And he brought them together 200 years earlier. And the world now knows him through myths and legends. The, the, he shipwrecked at sea. And his entire crew died, and he was the only one to wash up on the side of the ocean. Okay. Uh, he fell into a volcano and came out unburned. They just, you got all these stories about what High King Albion did. And then he yeah. met the creator God, and that creator God told him uh, the favor, which ended up being like the Ten Commandments. And it gave the commandment that kings and queens were gods. And then from there, you build the religion and all the rest of the story. And we started with some families. And what do these families look like? Because they're, they're from divine bloodlines. What does that look like? And seeing how some of the divine bloodlines, they last forever, right? Like you can't just be a 
your son, you get to choose your son or daughter who's going to be your heir. We like the idea of choosing and selecting the heir. Yeah. Right? Like letting the king or queen select who's next, who's going to follow in their footsteps. And then the gods sitting on the council, they're 40. So they're still they're still relatively young. They're going to live throughout their entire the entire reign of most of their kids. Um, so you're watching them grow. You're watching them have kids and they're passing on the, the crown and choosing who has the divine blood next and who will be the next to ascend. And it changes even what the what having the king or queen label is now, because mm. now everyone wants to make it to 40. And right. we came then the, the, the second piece of the idea was this idea of imposters. Right. That air, that the divine blood has left the bloodline if you die before 40, because you're supposed to be a god. So you shouldn't die. No one should die from your family. And then that becomes the second piece of our of our big narrative, because now we're writing a book. You're set in a time where there are going to be imposters and you're going to see what happens when there's an imposter king. You're going to see what happens when there's an imposter family. You're going to see start. You're going to start to see what happens when everyone feels the pressure to live a little bit further um versus what that would look like if you were just a regular king or queen who was ruling and it creates all of this it creates all this distrust and then the second character we actually came up with his name was the low king the low king kaiser he lives in modern time he was a king basically whose whole background is they did not let him ascend he Mm. turned 40 and they did not let him ascend the high council would not allow him to sit amongst them as a god so then he got a cult following and that and that group of people has only grown over the course of 20 and 30 years mm. and it's only gotten bigger and bigger. And in our books, we start to see what comes to head when you have the traditional religion that everyone believes in, the low king and his followers, and then some of these people who don't believe in either of them being godly because mm. not everyone would believe in the religion that's formed. Some right. people are going to be skeptical that Eros, Eros was first. So why would Eros say that any of them would be kings and queens and those people would become gods? And then why would the low king be right? And all these questions get stir- stirred around. And then we start bringing in our modern day, our modern day heroes. Uh, we bring in Asher, Aaron, Simon um, in our first book. And you get to see Aaron, who is our who is one of the first, who's the first character you get introduced to, and he's a prince who's becoming king. He's, you're at the ascension of his father who's becoming a god. Mm. You get to meet Asher, who's a king already, who is watching his father be very involved still, mm. because how hard is it to give up a crown once you've had it? And right. then we start to explore Simon, who has a father who's very absent, but he's also very... Uh, very much lost in his own way, in his own right. So then the story continues and you get all the conflict and all the plot twists and all that stuff as right. you build it out. That's awesome, man. Now that's so cool. I'm a, I'm an avid gamer as well. I have two other podcasts that are both about video games. So I'm a huge gaming fan and, and I consider myself a fantasy fan, but honestly, that's largely from gaming, right? Like mm-hmm. I've read the Game of Thrones books, like I'm a Game of Thrones hipster, right? I read the books before the show came out. Um, <laughs> and like I watched the Lord of the Rings movies when I was young, but I never read the books, you know what I mean? But I would consider myself a fantasy man, but it's almost all from gaming. Um, Dragon Age Origins for me. Yeah, dude, awesome. Yeah, that's a classic. That's a classic. And well, and like, I also, and I don't know if, I, yeah, I don't, I have no idea if this was an inspirational thing at all or not, but like, having this fantasy story and then weaving in modern day characters, that's almost got kind of like a little Assassin's Creed kind of vibe to it, right? Where they kind of interweave historical figures with modern day settings. Um, again, not that you're an Assassin's Creed hack or something. That's not my point. Uh, I, love <laughs> just, I love Assassin's Creed. Okay, cool, cool. Again, I wasn't trying to say you stole it from or something, just inspired by, inspired. Yeah. You're inspired by Jamil, so it makes sense. Um <laughs> Well, anyway, well, that's, yeah, that's super fascinating. So I'm curious, you know, doing a project like that, that's that involved with, uh, a, you know, a close friend or in your case, a family member, did, did anything unexpected come out of that? Like, did your relationship 
change in any way? And, and again, I'm not, you know, not in a negative way necessarily, but just did it change in some way that you hadn't anticipated going through that journey with your brother? Yeah, I think the, the thing that was most fun, and I'm, I'm going to say this, the thing that was most fun about the experience is that we both were able to be authentically ourselves um, in a way where it's just us. It was literally just me and him writing a book together. So every day we'd call each other and talk about storylines. We'd call each other and talk about what you're writing, what you're up to. Like it would be, it was such an everyday process because we were really just closer. We got so much closer. Mm. I think the, the previous years we were both in college. We both had our own things going on. We had lost a lot of that back and forth. We hadn't talked every day. We hadn't been communicating all the time. And then all of a sudden we found ourselves literally every day having fun building out a world, building out a story, um, building out characters and fleshing out this environment that that no one else knew existed for months because we hadn't yeah. even published the book. So we had we, we sat on the story for like eight months before anyone else even seen it. So we were just talking to each other about all the stuff. And I think for for me, it was just really nice to to connect with him on that level because I had never seen him as passionate and as happy um, doing something as he was publishing a book for the first time and seeing that dream come true. I think the other piece that was really interesting, and I think anyone that works with or goes into business alongside a family member especially, is that you have to become more, you have to have a balance between both. Right. Not everything can be about the work and the stuff, because that for a lot for especially in the beginning, all we talked about was the book. All we talked about was the projects. All we talked about was what was going on in the storylines. And it detracted from all the rest of our our relationship about anything else going on, because we only talked about one topic when we saw each other. So it ended up making us really have to reevaluate how much are we just really just speaking on this and how much can we talk about other stuff? Um, so that was a piece where I think balancing and learning to balance that was important. And we started to get, we got to a place now, um, where we talk about everything and it's not just the book. It's not just what, what his project is, what mine is. We, we separated and made companion novels. So I made, uh, when the crown gambles, I wrote the whole thing myself, um, talking to him and referencing some of the things he's writing in his, um, upcoming book. So, it was like we're working together, but at the same time, we don't have to do it all together because doing it all together really made it so all of our life was encompassed by the book. Yeah, no, that's super cool. That's super cool. So i i have a I do have a sister, but she's twelve years older than I am. So we didn't grow up together, really. Um, so I'm not actually an only child, but basically grew up like an only child. And I was always I always thought like having a brother or something would be like having a built-in best friend. Now I have a lot of friends that have siblings and that's typically not what that experience actually looked like. It was actually like having a built-in competitor (laughs) into the home. (laughs) Um, But I think that that maybe is more true when you're kids, right? And that's super Mm -hmm. cool to hear, uh, you know, now that you guys are men to be able to to get together and collaborate and have your relationship build like that. Um, Yeah, I just think that's super cool, man. Yeah, thank you. So, um We've talked about the book. So, so we have two books out, which the second one just came out in September of 2021. Yeah. Yeah. October 1st. Okay. Okay. And then, and so in this, is there a third one in the works? Yes. So okay. <laughs> there is the third. The third is the end of the trilogy of books that I'll be writing in this series. <laughs> so, <laughs> Turn it over to the creative, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so going forward after this book, there's I have a couple standalone books planned after this third installment. And then I have another series that I actually want to start writing cool. um, that I have a ton of stuff outlined for. So I'm itching to get to it. Um, so the final book, interestingly enough, the writing the last book has probably been uh, it's very daunting. And a lot of people told me writing the final book is going to be is going to feel daunting. Right. It's going to feel like you are now trying to culminate all of this other work you've done. As an author, you improve with every book you write, every word you write, every sentence you write, you get better and better at honing the craft. And now it's like you have the pressure of people wanting to get you get delivered on the story mm-hmm. and they want to see the ending result. You want to deliver the ending result. So it becomes uh, it almost becomes this self-defeating prophecy that you create in your head like, oh, the story's not going to be good enough. No matter how I end it, it won't end up being where I want it. 
So right. it takes a while to fester and think about and try to consider. And for me, I'm a person that needs the ending before I get to the the writing process. Oh, okay. Uh, so I spent the last, I, I think I wrote, I finished writing book two back in May, published it in October. And I sat between May and now uh, in November, I hadn't written a single word for book three. Because... <laughs> You because, take a break. Yeah, it took a break. It took a long break. And part of it is because I needed to think about the storylines. I had a lot of characters to wrap up, a lot of plots to tie in. Um, and then I got it, right? I got the ending that I wanted. I got the ending that I like, uh, the ending I feel like will fulfill all of the things that I promised in the first book, uh, all of the, the place we got to in the second book. And I think the third book will finally have the ending in its totality because it's hard to say, oh, I'm going to write a cliffhanger ending when you don't want to have another book in the series. Right. So, so you have to come up with something definitive. But then again, you don't want to close all the doors. So <laughs> so you, you, you try to balance it. And I think I found the balance. I think I found where I want to be. And now it's just about writing and getting that process done. So I'm excited about the, this third final installment. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think in trilogies, like, and I've never created a trilogy, so I'm completely speculating right now, uh, as you've gathered is most of my conversation. Um, but I feel like, like the first, the first work in a trilogy is, is there's pressure and it's challenging because you're trying to get people to buy into it. Right. And just establish mm -hmm. whatever it is. And the third one, to the point you just made, there's a lot of pressure and everything, cause you got to wrap it all up. But it seems like the second one is the most free because people are already bought in from the first one and you don't have to conclude anything because you've got a whole third book down the road. Right. So the second one is just a playground. Is that, is that accurate at all? Absolutely. <laughs> the second book is by far the best book to write. Yeah. I would, I would say the second book is you, a playground is the absolute best example of what it looks like. You're in the sand pits. You are sliding down the slide on the monkey yeah. bars. You can do anything in the second book because the second book, the second book is, it's like the first, the first book is a proof of concept. That's what I like to call it. Right. Yeah. We wanted to keep it short. We wanted to make sure that people could enjoy the idea, the concepts that we were trying to, that we were trying to put out there, see if they like the writing style. The second book is like, okay, let's see how much we can ramp this up. Let's see how far we can go right. with delivering a, a crazy narrative. Um, and the third book, you're like, okay, now that I've delivered that, I have to follow it up and conclude and wrap up everything. Because the second book is almost expected, because it's a trilogy, to end on a cliffhanger. It's right. expected that the story is not going to be over. So everyone knows that going in, that this is going to get us to a place where this story should be, where this book's story should end, but the overall story and narrative should not. The third book is like, okay, let's wrap up the storyline for book one, the thing that we carried into book two, and all of the stuff that we've layered. Let's continue to do more of that because people want more of the world. They want more of the characters. But also, it's, you have to stay true to the character. You can't just create random things. But also, you have to be interesting. You still have to deliver a narrative that that has a plot that can really hold its own because it's competing with two other volumes. Right. It's competing with two other books that showed what you're what you're capable of. Um, in my books, it's dark fantasy. A lot of people die in my books, right? The the twist to death is like my thing. So as I was coming up with the plot for book three, I know that people are going to expect deaths in the book. I know people are going to expect whatever storyline, right? So I have to figure out ways to be even more clever about delivering the twist that they're <laughs> expecting to come. So it's like right. you're expecting. So now it, it's been, it was super fun as I've been doing it because I'm like, oh, this is how this will happen. Right. Like this way that no one could have predicted is going to be the way or this is how this character started. And going from there is where the, the story gets really fun. But the second book is so much more fun to write because right. uh, the pressure just isn't there. The pressure <laughs> isn't there because you, you explore more. You're just exploring the world. It's just yeah. roses and lilies and gardens and all the good stuff where the third right. book is, is not. <laughs> so so I, I'm a huge fan of the Matrix trilogy of movies. 
Um, and far and away for me, the second one is my favorite. And it's exactly that. And a lot of people don't like the second two, but I think really what they don't like is the third one because it's the end and, you know, mm-hmm. people are unsatisfied, whatever. But dude, that second one is basically just nonstop action scenes. Like they're fighting on top of a semi. Like that's crazy. You know what I mean? Like that's all number two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For me, it's like when I look at Mass Effect 2, right? Yes. Yes. It's perfect example. Yes. The perfect video game, in my opinion, is Mass yep. Effect 2. It's yep. Everything you need in a story. It has all of the world that you wanted from the first game ramped up even further. Yep. And you see how hard it is for Mass Effect 3 to follow that up. Right, yes. And it's because okay. Mass Effect 3 has to, have a conclu- has to have an ending that gives you and delivers in all these ways. So that's, that's how I look at the books, except for not doing a Mass Effect 3 ending. Right, right, like you right. You actually give an ending that. Yeah, it, there are there are good thirds in a trilogy, right? So Lord you, of the Rings. Yeah, you're going to be doing great. Um, so one one last thing I wanted to touch on, you know, I, I know that you're also a podcaster. Um, where can people find your podcast, and what can they expect to to find when they tune in? Yeah, so my podcast, the new podcast, is going to be Scribble Notes. Um, it's going to have multiple shows within the podcast housed. One is going to be interviews, interviewing creative people uh, like yourself, authors, podcasters, uh, musicians. I'm going to talk to people about just their creative journey, how they create either a business or uh, the thing that they do and what that means to them. I've, through my experience of interviewing authors, I learned so much about people's passions and how doing something outside of just your regular everyday work or whatever that might look like outside of your everyday regular life, it means so much more to folks. And I think so many of us don't for the longest time. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't doing podcasts. I wasn't writing books. I wasn't trying, but it's because I put myself in this mindset that I don't have time or I can't or I won't, won't be good at it, and all these other things. So I want to be able to talk to people about that and talk to what their experiences are, learn from them. The, the second podcast is with my wife, and we're going to co-host it, and it's actually going to talk about um, a business. Like, how do you build a business? How do you build a brand? What does that mm. look like? What are all those steps? Uh, so we're going to have conversations about building a brand, building a business, and the different aspects of being a working person and doing all that and navigating it. Um, and then the third podcast is called Random Notes. Um, it's the third show of the podcast. And it is literally just random thoughts, ideas, and things that I have written down uh, from my experience. It's going to talk a little bit about creativity. It's going to be some tips. There's going to be some, a little bit of everything, a mosh posh of, of ideas and random notes of things that I think will benefit people to hear from, about, whether it's mindset um, and whether it's growth and development. Or if it's just like, this is just the best way to advertise yourself on social media. This is the, this is a, this is the way that I've found to be most helpful. Um, all those different things, I'll, I'll have those on random notes. So we'll have all those different shows available on Scribble Notes, the podcast. Um, I'm super excited to release and start, uh, start interviewing folks and bringing more people onto the show. It's going to be every Thursday um, starting in December. Awesome, man. Well, I know, um, you know, you've got a website inspired by Jamil.com and then you've also got a link tree um, link that provides links to all your different social media accounts and the books and all that stuff. So I'll make sure and include those in the show notes so that people can just click directly on it. Um, Jamil, it's been absolutely humbling to have you on and a real pleasure to talk with you. I I can't thank you enough. Um, Anywhere else that we should direct people to connect with you at or, or just that link tree link? Yeah, link tree is perfect. Or you could catch me on Instagram at inspired by Jamil. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks again so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been awesome just to talk to you, connect with you. Um, I feel like this has been a really fun conversation for me. So I hope everyone else is enjoying it as they listen.
windows broken, stories untold. Jabbing memories drift in the wind. Over signs dying in the grass. Mothers, fathers, and lifelong friends. Become layers of the mountains. Castles came crashing down Stone by stone they fell to the ground Brick and mortar eaten by earth again Their baby letters drifting into Families fled to the open plains Hard and handsome dirt and stone and Under the sun a turning grain a Fire and iron weaved in the bone a Brick by brick they built their home On the hill where ruins lie Generations walked those halls Now the roof crumbles under the sky The staircase came crashing down Step by step they fell to the ground No way to reach the top floor again It's a paper ladder drifting into came crashing down One by one they fell to the ground No way to keep the stone walls within Their paper letters drifting into Well, that's all for the show today. Thank you so much to Jamil for stopping by and sharing his walk of life. I also want to thank Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. And last but not least, thank you, listener, for listening. I also invite you to check out my other shows, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a video game podcast where we explore the idea of why gaming matters, or my other show, The Crowfall Podcast, which shares stories and perspectives from the MMO Crowfall. Both of these are available on any podcast app. Thanks again for the listen. Have a great week. Stay up. (laughs) 